0: Maybe if you don't want to talk, you could just listen. gang, what is happening? I am Mal Foster, and you are listening to, or maybe, just maybe, because we're trying something a little different here, you're watching the latest episode of your third favourite above average podcast, Dimed Out. That's right, we are trying something different. We're kind of shifting the parameters of the medium. Because this week's a special week. This week we have, I believe what they call in the industry... A get it is a pretty big name special guest, more of that in just a moment. But, um, yeah, we're gonna try this, we're gonna give it a go. So, there are options here if you do prefer your podcasts and this particular podcast in straight audio form, that's there, that's always gonna be there. But if you want to kind of see how the proverbial podcast sausage is made, so to speak, then you can, and the best way you can do that by heading over to YouTube and searching for Dimed Out Podcast and you will see every episode we've done in audio form archived but you'll also be able to see this episode, Season 2, Episode 8 in all of its visual glory. Alright, as for this week's episode, a few moments ago I did mention the fact that we have a Get, a pretty special guest and guess what? I was not telling any fibs. No, sir. If you have even just a passing remote interest in the idea of intelligent life out there in the cosmos, in the galaxy, in the great beyond, if you too want to believe, then this one is definitely for you. It is an absolute must listen. Towards the very back end of last year, I had the absolute pleasure to sit down via the power of Zoom to chat with our special guest this week, the one and only Dr. Seth Shostak, Senior Astronomer at SETI. Now, if you are unfamiliar with who Seth is and what SETI is and what SETI does, etc., don't worry because we are going to get into that. What you need to know about Seth is one, he is extremely knowledgeable within his field. I didn't just pull some Joe Schmo off the internet to talk about aliens. I'm talking to a legit, real guy who knows his astronomical onions here. Um, he is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Carl Sagan Award for the popularization of science. He's also the host of Big Picture Science, and he has a number of publications and books to his name, including Confessions of an Alien Hunter. So when I say Seth knows his stuff, he knows what he's talking about, that is an understatement and a half. But outside of his font of knowledge, outside of his expertise, the other thing you need to know about Seth, and that will become very apparent once we get into the interview, is that he is just an absolutely charming, personable person. I admittedly was a little bit nervous doing this interview because like, we're talking to somebody who really knows their stuff and I was like, oh, I really hope I don't make an idiot of myself. But that nervousness went away instantly because he just makes you feel very at ease and he's just super easy to talk to. And I think it comes across in the interview that we both uh, had quite a good time chatting with each other. This conversation is geared towards those who maybe don't know very much or anything at all about the 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 realistic expectations for intelligent life, the ongoing work in terms of trying to establish contact. We're kind of going in, as we do with a lot of niche particular subjects on this show, onto the ground floor through the front door. Because I feel that's the easiest and I feel that's the most accessible way for anybody that's listening. Some people may know the answers to the questions that are coming up, some people may not. But uh, yeah, I wanted to do this in that format, so it kind of brings people into the fold of what is actually happening, and then if you want to hear more, uh, I will reach out to Seth and and hopefully we'll be able to do something else in the future if people want to listen to more of that. And honestly, I wouldn't blame you because it's a cracking conversation. But yeah, I'm not going to waffle on anymore. This is me talking to Seth, and uh, yeah, enjoy. Farmer, thank you for, for taking the time to sit with me and, and talk about all these interesting uh, and infinitely curious things. Well, it's a pleasure, Mal, or maybe I should say it will be a pleasure. Yeah, exactly. Um, what I want to start with for people that are jumping into this completely unaware, um, what exactly is SETI and what is your role within the Institute? Well, SETI, that's an acronym. It's actually a
1: generic acronym and it just stands for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And what that really means is it refers to uh, the kind of experiments that have been conducted now for, what, 60 years, more, uh, to try and find if we have any, you know, cosmic uh, companions out there by trying to pick up signals or, you know, get some other indication that there's intelligence elsewhere in the galaxy.
0: Okay, so you mentioned experiments. What exactly is um, SETI to, looking for to establish the idea of intelligent life? What is it that they're, they're searching for?
1: Well, mostly we look for what are called techno signatures, although to me that's just entirely too much Greek. All it means <laughs> is that you're looking for, you know, for example, radio transmissions that somebody you know who's technically sophisticated might be broadcasting into space, or flashing lasers, or even for artifacts, although we don't do very much of that yet. I I think that that's also a promising way to find the aliens. Maybe they've built something big enough for us to see.
0: I was going to ask, when you say artifacts, what exactly are you referring to? Is that sort of like infrastructure or sort of architecture of sorts? Well, yeah, in a way, although, you know, ordinary architecture,
1: the kind that might result in somebody building the equivalent of the Crystal Palace or something like that, you would never be able to see that from light years away, you know, uh, certainly not with the kind of telescopes we have, and probably not with any kind of telescope, but uh, a really advanced society. You try and picture a society that's not just, you know, 100 years more advanced than we are, but maybe 100,000 years more advanced, or even more, right? The universe is old enough for that. Um, you know, maybe they've rearranged their solar system, or maybe they brought in other stars to their solar system as uh, energy sources, or maybe they built something called a dyson sphere around there star i mean there are all sorts of things that you can imagine if you're a science fiction writer or a reader mm-hmm. uh, that you know a, a really advanced society might do and while you can't imagine them in detail if you were to find something very odd in the sky you know you should at least give consideration to the
0: possibility that it's something that somebody deliberately made so would something um that that fits into that sort of category would that be something that immediately pings if you're 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 scanning you're searching you're you're looking out there as it were and and something does strike you as immediately or is that something like you could tell like okay that's different that's not what we're used to well i i i don't know i mean you could say we don't have the imagination to
1: you know be able to recognize something that we ourselves could not build right but maybe maybe that's somewhat like Talking to Neanderthals, right, thirty thousand <laughs> years ago, and saying, "Okay, you guys uh, go to war with one another with these uh, wooden clubs and these rocks over here." Uh, do do we think they could recognize that a tank, for example, <laughs> right, was, was some sort of instrument of war? You know, I, I don't know. They would certainly recognize that it was unusual because they hadn't ever seen one before.
0: Sure, I guess I suppose it, it comes down to a sense of perspective because you know we won't have certain frames of reference um that other beings out there will have so you know but yeah the the idea of of, sort of something pinging that isn't quite uh quite what we're used to i suppose would be yeah well even if they don't ping
1: right i mean right. if somebody visited the earth right now and uh they only had 10 minutes here they they might recognize for example that our cities represent something deliberately constructed or for that matter even the pyramids which are just a bunch of mm-hmm. pointy buildings very simple buildings. So, yeah, I mean, they, they might not have these things themselves, but they would recognize them as
0: the result of deliberate thought and effort. So is it, is it fair to say that primarily Satie's approach is, is it audio based? Is it is it based on, on transmissions? For the, for well, like not so much television? audio, but it is radio.
1: And of course, most people will think of radio as being audio because that's what we use radio waves sure. for here. But, uh, you know, television is also radio waves. So uh, who knows what sort of information is being carried on it. But if they build a big transmitter, no matter what the programming is, whether it's, you know, Klingon Top 40, or it's, uh, I don't know, you know, Chemistry 101, whatever it is, you might recognize, hey, gosh, this this is a signal. This is a signal. And does nature make signals like this or not? And if we can't think of any way that nature might have made those signals, then it's you know, it's completely legitimate
0: to say, well, maybe it's somebody broadcasting something. So a part of it is kind of process of elimination, kind of whittling down what is more than likely to be sort of natural product. Yeah, it is. I mean, astronomers'
1: job description is to find new things. I mean, that you know, trying to understand the existing things, or rather mm-hmm. the things we know exist, but to find new things. I mean, fast radio bursts have been found in the last decade or whatever uh they're they're new we still don't understand what causes them but they're you know obviously something very interesting i doubt that they're caused by aliens they're probably a natural phenomenon but that's been the story all along quasars pulsars these are all new things that have been found by astronomers and you know there's always been the tendency to think well before you uh, start working on models of you know collapsed stars or whatever you think might be causing these sorts of things you should consider the possibility that maybe they're being caused by something with
0: intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you about Breakthrough Listen Candidate 1, or BLC1, as it's been sort of put out. That seems to have been like a significant breakthrough of of late. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, this was a
1: signal picked up uh, using, I believe it was the Parks Radio Telescope in Australia, which is a very nifty looking <laughs> instrument it was in the movie the dish if anybody remembers that uh, the, the the dish came out i don't know what it was 10 years ago something like that It got great reviews but very few people went to see it unfortunately but it, they picked up this signal in as part of their seti work and the signal actually you know kind of fit the description of what you think a signal generated by a transmitter might look like it was relatively narrow band which is to say it was at, you know, sort of a specific spot on the radio dial. doesn't matter which spot particularly, but, you know, it's at one spot on the radio dial, not all over the dial, the way the radio noise produced by a quasar, for example, would be. So that already indicated that maybe it was not natural. And it was found, I believe it was found looking in the direction of a Proxima Centauri, which is the nearest other star system to ours. Uh, that's The telescope was pointed in that direction. Proxima Centauri is about what 4.2 4.3 light years away. A light year is almost six trillion miles, so you know that's still pretty far, but it's close by astronomical standards. So, of course, this uh generated a lot of interest. Is it is it something to build upon uh moving forward? Do you think? Oh, you can be sure that they've already, I mean, these observations were made in 2019, yeah. you know, just sort of getting around to analyzing them last year 2020. Uh, I'm sure that they've had other observations since. But one word of caution, picking up a signal is not an unusual uh, occurrence. Right, That happens all the time in SETI experiments. You pick up signals. In our experiments, we typically pick up, you know, five or ten signals per minute. Whoa. So there are lots and lots of signals. And, you know, there are lots and lots of signals that are narrow band, too. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's ET. I have to remind the listeners that there is an intelligent species we do know about, and uh, it's called Homo sapiens. And, uh, you, you know, you look at the neighbors, and you might figure, well, they're not that intelligent. I was going to well, say, that oh, okay,
0: so there might be some debate there.
1: <laughs> fair enough. But, but our definition of intelligence is really straightforward. If you can build a radio transmitter, we grant you the title of being intelligent. And, you know, humans can do that. So they're intelligent species. But uh, that also means that we build things like Earth-orbiting satellites of which there are many thousands. And, you know, a lot of them, the majority of them actually are dead because they've been launched a long time ago. But, you know, thousands of them are still sending signals back to Earth, you know, informing us about weather patterns over the Pacific or uh, crops growing in Bangladesh, whatever it is. And those transmitters, which are after all, only a couple hundred miles above our heads, they, they look just like, you know, the kind of signal
0: we're looking for from ET. All right. I've got a question for you, Seth, that I think some people, um, whether they are new to this or are sort of well-versed in this, will probably have. And it's a, it's a question that no doubt you've been posed many times, but uh, why is it that we haven't established like certified contact with intelligent life yet?
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, that, you, you're allowed to pick from a whole range of possibilities, right? This is like <laughs> a TV game show. Do You want what's behind curtain one, two, or three. Actually, there are more... Seer, and you can have them all or none. Uh, obviously, it could be the simple explanation, which I tend to find most appealing personally. And that is we simply haven't looked uh, in enough places at enough spots on the radio dial for a long enough time and with enough receiver sensitivity. And you know, that's kind of a technical thing, but that's really important. You're not going to, you know, if, if our eyes were poor, Uh, maybe our ancestors would never have looked up at night and seen the stars, right? Even though there are plenty of stars there, they wouldn't have seen them unless their eyes had a certain minimum degree of sensitivity. Now, that could apply to SETI, and I think that that's not an unreasonable assumption. But there are plenty of other possibilities, if you like. Maybe the aliens don't broadcast anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, maybe they, they figure that's a security risk. Right. Broadcast. Uh, maybe they have no interest in it. Maybe they've moved on to a different kind of existence where communication using radio or light is not, uh, not required. I, I don't know. You, can, you know, there are long lists of possibilities here, but they're all speculative.
0: Yeah, you kind of touched on one of, one of the things I was about to ask you in conjunction with that. Is there a possibility that we haven't established contact because of a mismatch in technology? As much as we have advanced specifically over the last 20, 30 years, we may still be behind the curve in comparison to, to life out there. Is that a possibility for why we haven't established contact? Well, of course it is. I mean, it's been likened to, you know, if the aliens were using
1: smoke signals... <laughs> Which might have, might have been a good mode of communication, you know, a thousand years ago in certain locations, isn't terribly much used today. Right. Doesn't have much, the, doesn't have much bandwidth. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. But, but that boils down to saying, well, we don't know what we don't know, which is true. So anything is possible. But, you know, you have to base your experiment on what you know works, right? The, the, what you think on the basis of physics and astronomy is the most likely mode of communication for aliens.
0: Right. Moving slightly to the side, just ever so slightly, um, do you have any belief in the idea that we have established contact with intelligent life? It just hasn't been made public yet. Yeah, well, a lot of my neighbors certainly believe that. And maybe they've
1: established contact. That I can't say.
0: But I get emails
1: every day from people who are (laughs) fully convinced that they've established contact. Uh Not only that, uh, you know, some of the... uh, uh, phenomena seen in the sky, you know, UFOs. Right. Some of them are, in fact, alien craft. That's believed by about one third of the population of the United States. Wow, one third. But you know, that's also true in Britain. It's true in Germany, yeah, for sure. It's true in you know, Liechtenstein. It's always about one third. So it's a very, very commonplace belief, and uh, it's also an industry of some sort. There are some people, not a, not entirely negligible number of people who actually make their living by promoting this idea, uh, talking about it, writing books about it or whatever. Fair enough. But if you talk to astronomers or if you just talk to academics in general and say, well, do you think the Earth is being visited? And very few of them would say, yeah, that's very likely. Most of them will say, I don't think that evidence is very good. And there are good reasons for saying that. But, you know, uh, without good evidence, you can say whatever you want.
0: Well, this is true. Um, do you feel like that, uh, it boils down to sort of a sense of logistics? Like I, I like so many people, so many layman's are trying to sort of wrap their head around the distance between a light year uh, in, in comparison. I, I can't remember the number you threw out, but it was a lot. It was a big number. Do you feel that is a part that plays in it in the sense that if there are civilizations, if there is intelligent life out there, it's just too far away? Well, that argument essentially
1: boils down to saying, you know, our rockets can't possibly go to the stars in any reasonable period of time. I mean, you take the fastest NASA rocket or anybody else's rocket, (laughs) Elon Musk's rocket, anybody. (laughs) They take any of them and they move at about, you know, somewhere between five and seven miles per second. Okay. Now that's pretty fast. Uh, You know, if you're going into the city for a drink or something, that is pretty fast, but it's unfortunately far too slow to go to the stars. I mean, just to go to the nearest other star, at that, that speed, takes 75,000 years. That's yeah. a long trip in a rocket, you know, where you have to, to keep your seatbelt fastened and, and you get served really poor food. So <laughs> it's, it, you know, that that's tough. But to say it's impossible, uh-huh. and that's why UFOs couldn't be alien craft. that may be a bridge too far, because after all, you know, yeah, it's not very good for us, but if you're a civilization that was a million years more advanced than we are, for example... And that could be. I mean, the universe yeah. is old enough for that. Yeah, you know, maybe they have rockets that really do go faster. I, I don't know about warp speed. There are questions about whether that actually could ever be a reality, because you know it uh, kind of violates some basic tenets of physics. Yeah. But but that aside, you know, I mean, I never, tr- I, I'm never comfortable underestimating the capabilities of the aliens, because after all, if you'd ask Julius Caesar whether cell phones were a possibility. You know, uh, in 200 AD, he probably would have said no. But that could be, I think that the the stronger argument is actually not that. The stronger argument is why are they here now, right? Because they, right. they don't know much about Homo sapiens because our news broadcasts and everything else haven't reached them yet unless they're extremely
0: close. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a valid point that I hadn't actually considered. But yeah, the amount of time that we've, uh, it, it seems to us, because of how we sort of encapsulate time, it seems to us that we've been broadcasting and creating and transmitting things of our own around to other places and to each other for a long time. But in that comparison, yeah, it's uh, it's it's really it's not been able to travel that far, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. The first you know high frequency transmitters and high power were uh, the radar during the Second World War, mm-hmm. right? So if you say okay, beginning in 1945, we had radar, we had FM radio, we had television. These are all high-frequency, high-powered transmissions. But, you know, the 1945, all right, so that's, what, 55, 60, 75 years ago. So if anybody is more than 75 light years away, they haven't seen any of that yet. And if they're more than half that distance, not only have they, uh, you know, I mean, they have seen it, but there hasn't been enough time for their, um, if you will, responses. You know, they don't, don't like our TV shows to get back to Earth. So that means that the number of societies out there that could
0: actually know of homo sapiens might be zero. Kind of tying on to what you were saying there about responses, Um, when we do make contact, and I'm using when because I'm I'm being optimistic about this, I genuinely do feel like it is a case of time. When we do make contact, is it likely to ever result in a dialogue of sorts, a response, or is it just more than likely to be a one-sided conversation as it were?
1: Well, probably one sided only because of the fact that the speed of light, right. while high, is not infinite. So, yeah. you know, you, you pick up a, the signal from somebody who's 50 light years away, say, or 100 light years away, and you answer them by saying, hi, we're the earthlings, and we're here to, you know, talk with you guys because we figure you're really interested in what we're doing today. You know, <laughs> it takes 50 or 100 years for that signal to get to them in another 50 or 100 years So their reply to that. And so that's pretty tedious. I, I I don't know if you'd call that conversation. You know, you text your buddy and you get a response a hundred years from now. Yeah. Uh, you probably don't care <laughs>
0: about it anymore. So chances are you've forgotten, or, or just not there at all. To yeah, receive.
1: No, your cell phone battery has died.
0: <laughs> um, on the idea of of the possibility, because I do like to keep an open mind. I do, you know, I personally don't that there would be a dialogue of sorts, But this is just a bit of a fun question, I guess. If contact was to result in a dialogue, Seth, and you personally were in charge of speaking for... (laughs) I don't know if you want the job. I don't know if I would want the job. But if you were in charge of speaking on behalf of humans, uh, what would you want to communicate to intelligent life on our behalf? And what would you like to ask the intelligent life in return?
1: Well, I mean, I think that there is an endless series of questions. I mean, maybe that's like asking the Arawak uh, Indians of the Caribbean, you know, 500 years ago, and Chris Columbus and his buddies sail into into view, and they sit around for a couple hours because they've got a couple hours yet and decide, you know, what is it that we want to tell them about ourselves?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And on the one hand, you could say it really doesn't matter. (laughs) They won't won't understand it anyhow. And secondly, what's going to be much more important is when they look at you. Right? They'll, right. they'll get a lot of information that way. So I don't know that it matters too much. But you know, the obvious things to tell them about would be our biology, in case they have biology, in case they're living things. Right. Um, you know, they might be interested in that. And maybe something about your culture. You could you could tell them about physics or chemistry, but they know all that. Right? If they're getting in touch with you, they know all that. Sure. So you don't really have to tell them that. But uh you could ask them questions that are um, slightly different in, in characters, such as, you know, do you have music, right? Or
0: do you have religion? Those mm-hmm. sorts of things. I think yeah. those are the things I would probably ask. Those would be interesting things to ask because, as you say, from a scientific standpoint, yeah, they, they've probably got most of this, the same bases that we've got covered, like down pat. They know exactly what they're doing, they know all about that. So, yeah, to kind of probe the ideas of sort of societal uh norms, uh, organizations, and structures would be interesting to see if that translates. In any way, um, you mentioned about the the image and appearance in in that sort of uh, analogy. That kind of leads me on to to the next question. Um, I mean, over the decades, uh, throughout like various mean mediums of pop culture and alleged reports of human contact, we've kind of developed various ideas of what form ETS may take. Uh, what I want to know. Is, are there any realistic expectations or ideas as to what form ETs may take?
1: Well, of course, the problem there is realistic. What that adjective means in this context, nobody knows. I mean, again, you could have, I I suppose you could have asked the trilobites, you know, 300 million years ago. Okay, there might be life on other planets. What do you think it looks like? you know, they would have described a trilobite, I suppose. Same with the dinosaurs. Right? <laughs> you know, as Monty Python said, they're small at one end, big in the middle, and small at the other end. I mean, you know, maybe that's what they would say. Uh, there, are, there are various schools of thought here. If you look at aliens on TV and in the movies, they, generally speaking, look like us. Mm-hmm. Sure, they don't smile, and they don't have any hair, and they don't wear clothes and stuff like that. But yeah. basically, they look like humans, two eyes, you know, mouth, whatever. And maybe that's reasonable. I mean, it. Those are all useful things for any being, any any animal, if you will, that uh, is intelligent enough to build tools and stuff like that. They need some of that stuff. Uh, there's certainly an evolu- well, there's an evolutionary biologist in the UK, right? Simon Conway Morris. He's at Cambridge, and you know he's written articles and books about this, and he's fairly convinced that if you found an alien and asked them to send a a headshot or ask them to just send a selfie of any kind, they would look something like us. That might mm-hmm. be. I I think that a safer bet is to say, well, there's no reason that they should look like us exactly any more that the, than the dinosaurs would have predicted that most of the, you know, the fauna of Earth would look like, you know, <laughs> 100 million years after they were gone. I mean, they wouldn't have predicted things like elephants and tigers and stuff like that they, they, they had their own ideas of what sophisticated life would look like so i don't know but the, but you can certainly set some limits they can't be too small if they're intelligent because you don't get enough you know brain cells or whatever and right. they can't be too big otherwise they can't get around so you know there are some limits but i don't think there are very many limits in terms of what they might look like
0: do you feel like we've kind of um shaped our perception uh, and I suppose it, it it really does kind of become filtered through, as I say, pop culture um, and what have you. Do you think we've kind of shaped intelligent life in, in a sort of human variant because we are, for the most part, the, the sort of go-to for intelligent life? Obviously, there are intelligent beings and, and what have you around us that aren't human, but because it's what we understand and what we know, so we just instantly assume that if there is intelligent life, yeah, it's going to kind of sort of resemble us, but in a in a variant.
1: Well, I, I do think that that's a natural thing to do. I mean,
0: you say there are other intelligences
1: around us, and I assume you're not speaking of my neighbors, but <laughs> it, it could be that, you know, you're speaking of dolphins or yeah. you know, other simians. I mean, the simians, which are, after all, the smartest critters, aside from humans, they do look a, quite a bit like us, actually. Or maybe it should be said that we look like them. Whatever. But that's due to that a, a very simple uh, thing, namely, they were our four, forefathers, if you will. Uh, and the dolphins were not, you know, we're not related in a direct line back to the dolphins. And, and yet they, they score well on their uh, IQ tests and they get into some of the better schools. But I guess it, schools of fish. I Yeah, But, but they, don't, they, don't, they don't have the kind of intelligence that allows them to develop science right. or technology. So you can say that dolphins are smart, and I'm sure they appreciate that. But they're not smart in the sense that's relevant for the search for for aliens. I, I guess you could say if they can't manipulate a tool, right? Uh, you know, then they're they're probably not going to be technologically very advanced, right? So if you know, and that's a problem that dolphins have. You
0: know, if you ever watch a dolphin try to use a pair of pliers, <laughs> um. I suppose, kind of going back to technology for a second, do you feel that there is a there is a possibility that intelligent life out there has taken some form of of mechanical or, or technological shape? Because we are constantly, as I say, moving forward with our own technology, and obviously a question that's on the minds of a number of people is is the idea of singularity and uh, advanced computers uh, and going with the the idea not the presumption, but the idea that perhaps intelligent life has surpassed us from a technological standpoint. Is there sort of reasonable justification to think that perhaps the intelligent life form has or does take the form of a sort of technology?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Mal. I mean, this is, this is a drum I've personally been beating a long time. I think people are tired of hearing me say it. <laughs> but but the facts are that if you consider what we, humans Are going to do in the twenty first century, you know, there are all sorts of things we'll we'll do. We'll cure a lot of disease, and we'll start doing, well, biological engineering. You know, with CRISPR technology, not only can you fix some diseases and stuff like that, you know, the promise is there for that. But but also you can just eventually you can you know design entirely new organisms, not just designer babies, Mm which will make you feel great because your kid looks better. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, and gets into the better schools, not not just designer babies, but you know, designer organisms, right? Now maybe the zoos are filled not with giraffes and tigers and so on, but things that are specifically designed to live in the kind of environments we're creating today. I, you know, that that's for sure. But I think the most important thing in the twenty first century is is not even that; it's that you build artificial intelligence. And uh, I'm here in the Silicon Valley, and there are plenty of people working on AI around here, mm-hmm. and. You know, if you talk to them and say, "Well, will we have a machine sometime this century that can write novels better than Jane Austen, for example?" Uh, they all—they invariably say yes, and they usually figure that'll be by 2050. So, as soon as you have that smart machine, you ask it to design its successor, and then design its successor, and so forth. So, very quickly, you have machines that are much smarter than all humans put together. And I I can't imagine that the aliens haven't done all this already. At least the ones we would hear from.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I look at how we are moving forward. Um, It's it's really exciting, but at the same time, there is an air of danger to it as well. I feel. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's just my cynicism.
1: Well, I mean, there is that question. (laughs) I think Isaac Asimov was once worried about the danger posed by computers, and keep in mind. You know, he died before computers were in everybody's house, but but he said he was more worried about the danger of not developing
0: computers, mm. and
1: I, I'm sure that means something profound. But
0: As, well, yeah, I, I guess uh, I don't know what that would be at the minute, but that's an interesting uh, sort of slant to to take forward. I suppose it kind of taps into the idea of of not moving forward with with potential, I guess, and and see. Yeah,
1: I mean, it, it's like saying. I don't know,
0: 150,000
1: years ago, you know, it might be dangerous to learn how to smelt iron, <laughs> right? Because you're gonna make, you know, better axes and you're just gonna kill a lot more and that sort of thing. But on the other hand, if you don't develop metals, you know, your society is forever stuck in the stone age. So, uh, you yeah, it's a mixed bag always.
0: So the the next question I have is one that you probably have have faced a, a number of times, um, but it's it's one that I think a lot of people will probably ask anyone that has any just modicum of interest in this subject, and that's should we be introducing ourselves to possible intelligent life in the first place? Is there a, a concern for our safety by doing so? Well, there are plenty of people who think there is a concern, mm-hmm. uh, and even
1: you know. Stephen Hawking weighed in on this, uh, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. He he said, well, we shouldn't broadcast into space because after all, you don't know what's out there. And uh, anybody that picks up our signal is going to be more technically advanced than we are. And uh, every time a society meets another society that's more technically advanced, it doesn't work out so well. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's considering the analogies, well, mostly in the New World, I suppose, when the Indians met the Europeans. Okay. Fair enough, but on the other hand, um, to begin with, almost nobody is doing such an experiment. Right, and it's called active SETI, where you broadcast and hope to get replies. Mm-hmm. And there is an organization that uh, is set up to do that. They're based uh, nearby in San Francisco, in fact. Uh, they've only had one signal deliberately broadcast so far, and it was, you know, not a very powerful signal. So, but the real problem with that is, uh, as an experiment, is that you broadcast to some star system and say, hi, we're the earthlings, uh, we'd love to get in touch, please answer if you hear us. You know, uh, if you want to do that to a million star systems, which probably you need to do to have some hope there's somebody on the other end. A, a million, that means that on average, they're a couple of hundred light years away. So you broadcast and, you know, they get the message and they say, okay, Zorka, let's answer these earthlings. You know, maybe they can become a trading partner or something. And, and it takes another couple of hundred years for you to get a reply so the experiment is really really long duration there's that but i don't worry too much about the danger yeah sure you know maybe you're going to inadvertently broadcast to a society that's only interested in coming in you know incinerating your planet uh I, <laughs> it's an interesting project to get funded uh but you know <laughs> assuming they they want that then you know you, you you've not done humanity a good deed by resulting in its total annihilation but <laughs> Uh but we're broadcasting into space anyhow. I mean right. all the radars at the airports and many other things are broadcasting into space all the time. And yes, those are fairly weak, not entirely, but fairly weak. But on the other hand, any society that has the technology to come here, right, and cause problems, they also have the technology to pick up even weak signals. So uh I, I think that this is, you know, a horse has left the barn kind of scenario.
0: Right. For sure, it's 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 a little bit late to be asking the question, I guess. But it's um, I I think it's one that that maybe people have had for some time and still do, and still probably well, they still do. I'm doing it. Myself there there now. are many people concerned.
1: who are yeah, many people are quite hard over about this question. It's true.
0: Do you find some people are very sort of? Uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to use the word militant because it seems a little bit harsh, but are very sort of hardened to the idea that it's it's a bad bad idea to be doing it
1: well there are such people i i do personally know some who mm-hmm. just think that there ought to be that the seti community ought to forbid this kind of transmission but of course the seti community doesn't you know we don't have any yeah. deputized officers that can yeah. you know, yeah. jump into somebody's transmitter shack and say you know we're putting you under arrest or there's right. no yeah. there's no legal basis for it there's no but no <laughs> possibility of enforcement and if somebody in some country that I can 't pronounce decides to broadcast to the stars, there's nothing I can do about it
0: yeah, no, there isn't as, as you say the the, the horse is has bolted already um, and and to even try and act on that it's uh, a little bit redundant so another big question, and, and we're coming towards the end of my questions here seth uh is Is there a projected or estimated timeline of when we can expect to make contact? Is there an idea in mind? Um, whether that be hopeful or, or sort of estimated.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, that might be a little bit like asking, you know, Chaucer, hey, uh, when do you think we'll find a new world? <laughs> yeah, he really doesn't know. And he could, he could say, well, I don't know, maybe next March or something. <laughs> but uh, I have bet everybody, I, I have regrets about this, but I have bet everybody a cup of Starbucks that will find ET before about 2035, 2040. Okay and that's based on the improvement in technology for seti experiments that you know has as an implication by that point by you know in the next 10 20 years we will have looked at a million star systems for signals and uh, a million seems like a good good enough number to find something but that's you know just totally speculative yeah. it remains totally speculative because until you find something you really have no idea whether you're close or whether you're nowhere near close. And we, we just don't know.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of figured that would be the answer, but it's, it's, it's always good to, to kind of know. And uh, I'm hoping that you're able to cash in on that bet in uh, 14 years.
1: Well, I could use a cup of coffee.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't we all? <laughs> um, so I've nearly done. Uh, one question I want to ask, which is slightly off of topic, I guess, um, kind of, is how did you even get into to doing what you're doing? How did you even get into this? Because it is a very specific interest. It's a specific job. It's a specific area. How exactly did you end up doing this? Like, is there a moment in your life earlier on where something just clicked, where you were just looking up at the skies and were like, "That's for me."
1: Yeah, actually, there was. Believe it or not, because the usual answer to that is no, <laughs> but, but in this case, the answer is yes. Uh, you know, I studied astronomy in grad school and uh, radio astronomy in particular. And so I was uh, at in the, one of the deserts of California, there are many to choose from, and uh, was at a radio observatory studying galaxies. That's what I did. And uh, I happened to read this book that had been published in the 1960s by Carl Sagan and, uh, and a Russian physicist. And they pointed out that the kind of instruments, you know, I was using to study galaxies could also conceivably Find signals coming from other societies. Yeah. That was a very interesting idea for me. I didn't do much about it for a long time, but eventually, when I moved to this part of California, uh, I was offered a job at the SETI Institute, and it happened to come on a good day for me. And so I said yes.
0: Excellent. Right, that's it, very much. Before we go, though, Seth, um, how can listeners, if at all, get involved with uh, or help support the work being carried out at SETI? Is there a way well, people I- can get involved?
1: Yeah, of course they can. Get, well, although we don't do too much citizen science, in fact, none at the moment mm-hmm. because uh, we don't have the resources for that. SETI—I should point out—is a very, very, very small operation worldwide. The total number of people involved in SETI is on any given day generally fewer than working at the local uh, fast food restaurant here in California. So it—it it, it really is very small, and that's because it's all funded by private donations. It's not funded by the government, not in this country, and in fact. Not in any country these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's a very interesting thing, but there's no guarantee of success. So in that sense, you can't just go to a venture capitalist or somebody like mm-hmm. that and say, give me this amount of money and we'll find ET. You don't know. But it's, it's so interesting if you succeed that I think uh, it's more than worth the, the monies such as they are. To do. I would recommend if anybody's interested to just go to the SETI Institute website, which is really simple. It's just SETI, S E T I, almost my name, S E T I dot O R G, and uh, they'll find all sorts of stuff.
0: Cool. Make sure you do that, guys. Go check it out. There is plenty of great stuff for you to go check out. If this has uh, given you the itch to know more, you will certainly learn it over there. Um, Seth, thank you so much for your time and for, for putting up with my, my straightforward and occasionally sort of side ways questions um yeah it's an absolute pleasure to sit and chat with you
1: well thank you mal and i i appreciate the fact that you tell it like it is yeah seth. that's
0: that's that's what i'm all about seth uh you know trying to learn more about everything about this life and what lies outside of it and beyond but at the same time keeping very much to who i am i hope there's a next life for me I, <laughs> you know I, I intend
1: to have you know less expensive hobbies <laughs>
0: It's a good good aim to have. All right, gang. So there you go. That was me talking to the ever-wonderful Dr. Seth Shostak. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode. Hopefully you found yourself entertained. You learned a few things in the process. But more importantly... Hopefully it gave you an itch of curiosity to dig even deeper into this particular topic. If it did, if you've got the itch and you just need to scratch it, then the best place to do that, and as we mentioned at the tail end of our conversation, the best place to support SETI and what they're doing, simply go visit seti.org. Plenty of stuff on that website for you to dive into, lose yourself within, and learn a whole heck of a lot more in the process. I mentioned at the top of the episode as well that Seth presents the big picture science show. Holy recommend that as well if you've enjoyed this episode if you've got an interest in this topic and the search for intelligent life out there. If you want to support this show and what we're doing, then there's a very simple way you can do that, and that is just by subscribing. If you haven't already, then just subscribe. We are available pretty much everywhere on your favorite podcast platform. There's a good chance you will find us there if you haven't already. Just hit that subscribe button. It helps us out enormously, and as an extra incentive, it delivers every future episode straight to your device of choosing without you having to do a single thing. How about that? If you want to help us out just a little bit more and in the process get some nice juicy bonus content then you might be interested to know we have a patreon account you can find us at patreon.com forward slash dimed out and you can see our one single five dollar tier that's right five dollars a month gets you an extra bonus podcast it gets you a live stream q a hangout thing every month and other stuff including access to the dimed out discord channel ...where we get to share stuff that didn't make the episode... ...including music, artwork... ...and we kind of just get to chat about the different topics... ...and you can throw in suggestions and what have you... It's, ...it's a good time, it's a good time in there. If you have enjoyed this episode and this topic in particular... ...and you'd like to see more science-based stuff... ...for future episodes of Dime Down... ...get in touch, let me know. In fact, whatever you want to see for future episodes of the podcast... ...just get in touch and let me know. I'm always looking for your recommendations... ...your suggestions and your ideas... Best place to do that is get in touch via Twitter or Instagram, and you can find me at I am Mal Foster. On the topic of future episodes, next week's episode is going to be one of two focused on music. I have touched upon this briefly in the past. In fact, I even put out a sort of preview bonus podcast episode sampling some of it. But yeah, we have made a compilation. I say we; it's just me. There's there's nobody else. I have made. ...a compilation of music that originated from this very show. Yeah, it started off life as transitional pieces between segments... ...and then I just had so much fun putting these things together. I kind of got back into sampling and sequencing drums and... ...yeah, all of that good stuff. And it kind of just snowballed into its own separate thing. So now it exists as a sort of... ...as an album, I think, because it's about... ...I haven't finalised the track listing just yet... ...as of the time of recording, but it's between 22 to 30 minutes, so I guess it counts as an album. Anyway, we're going to get more into detail about it next week, because next week's episode is kind of just a sort of fun, sort of laid-back episode... ...in which I kind of go through the process a little bit, going to play you a whole bunch of tracks that are going to be featured on the compilation... ...along with some stuff that didn't quite make the cut, a couple of other things that I'm working on that are separate to it... And uh yeah, just talk about what shaped it, influences, inspirations, and uh yeah, just talking about music. In particular the genres of lo-fi, lo-fi hip hop, jazz hop, ambient music, down tempo music. If any of these things sort of strike a chord with you, if you ever found yourself with a YouTube tab open, listening to a mix of beats to study to, then yeah, next week's episode is something you're definitely gonna want to check out. Cause that's the kind of uh it's the kind of sonic shape of it, I guess, Dimed Out Jams, Volume 1, because, you know, hopefully there's going to be more to come. And on that note, that's pretty much it for this episode. We're pretty much finished. This is where we part ways. As always, thank you for listening. Look after yourself, look after each other, and until next time, keep it dimed.